Welcome to Semio Bites, bite-sized podlog episodes related to theological semiotics. All right, so I understand that you have questions about eschatology, correct? Uh, not exactly. I have thoughts about end times <laughs> that I just want to kind of bounce around, and they, of course, they have questions buried within them. All right, well, go ahead and fire away. All right. Um, Eschatology is a fancy theological or seminary or ecclesial kind of word for the end of time or the end times. And I, I, right now, the title, working title of my dissertation is The End Signs. Are they really coming? That's pretty cool. Uh, there's an ambiguity in there because the end signs is a complete sentence. Signs is the verb, end is the subject, and the is a particular identifier. So it's like saying President Trump tweets. I'm saying the end signs. It's telling us it's coming. See what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about that's my working title. And I want to talk about four senses in which we have to deal with that as human beings. First, there's an inevitable fact. If you go to your doctor and say, Doc, when am I going to die? I guarantee you the answer you're not going to get is never. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I mean, so the first end time that we as finite human beings, in this life anyway, have to face up to is we're living and we're dying every nanosecond we're here. Sooner or later, we run out of the ones that are alive and we end up less dead. That makes sense. I can't remember who said it, but they made a point that every minute is a minute less of your life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's pretty good, actually. Um, so anyway, there's that sense in which an end time is coming. And, that you, you know, we don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. But as I've gotten older and had to deal with the more impending fact, that fact of life, uh, I've just kind of, you know, gotten kind of ensconced and comfortable with it. New mm-hmm. Testament says it is appointed once for man to die. And then comes the judgment. So there's where that sense of the end time comes into play from a Christian perspective. How does that play out from a Jewish perspective? So I know you and I have talked independently of this a little bit before, but uh, really when it comes down to the end times, so to say, there's a lot of differences in belief systems between Judaism and Christianity on this. And this is more of that how do we bridge it type thing. Wait just a second. I'm not going to the whole eschatology yet. I'm just talking about the fact of our physical life coming to the fact of our physical life. Oh, that that one's pretty easy. Um, We're physical beings. We live, we die. Um, we accept within Judaism that it's to be a very practical faith. What do we do here in this world? And we accept the Torah itself, at least from a Jewish perspective, really doesn't address anything beyond this life. And okay. so we have to, we look at, okay, here I am. I must exist for some reason. And then it's finding out what that reason is. And sometimes we figure it out and sometimes we don't. But along the way, we try to improve the world that we're in, whether or not we've figured out our life's mission or purpose. I see. Okay. All right. That, so Christians, at least, and Jews are pretty much on the same road, if not the same bridge yet, right, on that point. We all know yeah. we're going to die, and it's what yeah. we do in the meantime that's meaningful. Yes. Um, and actually, um, that's kind of like where the concept of Tukun Alam comes in, the repairing of the world. We believe the world's broken. We believe that it was, it's been broken since the act of creation. And that's our goal to try to fix it somehow. And I think that that runs a very similar vein with Christianity in that regard, 
is that we're looking at how to improve things. And sometimes those improved things go a little bit different tracks, but right. we both try to do a lot of, I guess the Christian term is mercy ministries, right? Exactly. Or yeah, humanitarian. So, yeah. yeah, so we do, Judaism does believe in a lot of philanthropy and humanitarian efforts. And so we definitely align in that regard. Okay, so we're on the same road and the same bridge and the same page there. Okay, so now I want to take the time spectrum and go to the complete other ends because I know that this is a matter of dispute within Christianity. And I think we've talked about this before. It's an unsettled question in, in Orthodox Judaism as well. And that is how old and when's it going to end universe. Now, theoretical mm. physics says there was a big bang started from nothing and brought us to where we are today. And that was 14 billion years ago. And they don't know exactly how long entropy is going to take to return us to the big crunch, which is going to take it back to nothing. And that's literally the scientific jargon. Big bang, big crunch, entropy from one to the other. So okay. that's one view. Now, I've, I've run across Christians and at least some Jewish writers, authors, bloggers who say that, no, 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 no. It ain't nearly that old. It's in the few thousands of years, six, eight, five, nine. I mean, it's fairly... You know, it's not over 10,000 years in some view. Yeah. And there's no, but here too, there's no sense of how long is it going to take to get to some end. Is there a sense of that entropy in the Jewish view? So, I mean, within the Jewish view, you do definitely have those who believe in a younger earth philosophy. Um, personally, I always refer to the age as the, you know, the years, uh, the earth is 5,778 years old because that's what year it is on our calendar. But you also have those who say, well, wait a second. Day four is when we got, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars and all that. So the first three days could have been however long. And then you also have the Kabbalists who say, well, this isn't the first earth. So I don't think there's a clear definition within Judaism as far as the beginning. But as far as an end is going, I mean, we definitely look at the world we're in and we see it's our job to make repairs to it. And our... Our definition of Messiah aside, when we talk about the Messiah coming, we have either option A or plan B, as it were. The, the, the preferred idea is that the whole world is able to finally deserve the messianic era. And then the Messiah comes. That's easy peasy. Everybody's peace, love, and joy, kumbaya. And then plan B, which recently seems like the more risk realistic option, is we've allowed things to get to such a point of despair that the Messiah needs to come or we're goners. Okay, good, good. That's interesting because there's a certain harmonious resonance there between that sense that we've messed things up so badly that the Messiah needs to come to get us out of the mess we put ourselves in, right? Yeah. Well, that's certainly compatible. The story is told, I suspect, a bit differently and the meaning of the term Messiah is different, but it's still the same central concept between that Jewish view, I think, if I have it right, and what the book of Revelation and Daniel and the prophets and uh, John in Revelation or whoever actually wrote it. But the Christian New Testament view of the apocalypse is, I don't know if the Jewish view has that apocalyptic period, the tribulation period for the return or not. But you know it does in Christianity. You know Christianity as well as I do. Yeah, yeah. No, so, Christianity but, definitely does have that. But still, the idea that the Messiah has to come back to get us out of the mess we created for ourselves, that's compatible on both views, right? Yeah. Um, there's this one rabbi, Rabbi 
he, his name is Rabbi Tovia Singer. He is a counter missionary. So he kind of works against Jews for Jesus and tries to prevent Jews from being missionized. But he uh, once made the comment that he knows every morning that, that Messiah hasn't come because he looks at the times and it doesn't say world peace. <laughs> I like that. I really do. That's, uh, that's interesting. So there is that theological sense of end times that there's a lot of harmony again between the Jewish view and the Christian view, although there are some significant differences yeah. that we would have to figure out how to put bricks in the bridge to connect and harmonize those differences. But yeah. it is interesting that there's that third sense of an end times from a theological perspective. We wandered away from the physics. We kind of left that there, but that's okay. There wasn't a lot more to say. That's just an open question theologically and in physics to some extent, although if you ask Stephen Hawking before he died, he said the scientific account is complete. Well, I, you know, that really makes my skin crawl, but you know, that as it may, I think it's still open to some scientific dispute, even though it's obvious that it's open to theological dispute because of those two differences. They're, mag they're huge differences. Yeah. I mean, as far as, you know, the physics within Judaism, uh, Judaism is a practical faith. We have our science area, but science is, the Jewish science is more secular science. It doesn't try to make a theological science. The closest mm -hmm. you're going to get would be what Kabbalah says about creation, which is the mystical end, is that um, mm -hmm. when Hashem created the earth or when he created the physical plane, he had to try to restrain some of his essence to make space for us because he has no end. And the process of trying to restrain some of his light, the vessels holding those light, the light, the vessels broke. And all these shards mm -hmm. fell to earth and these light, these sh pieces of the light fell to earth. And all the shards is every pain and suffering that we find in the world that we have to experience and make good out of. And all the bits of light is all the souls of all of humankind. Oh, that's interesting. So that's probably the closest you'll get if you're looking for a physics and within the religious framework. From the Orthodox Jewish perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, kind of what's running through my mind, of course, is because I'm sure you've been around the literal truth interpretation advocates for the Bible who won't give an inch on any of it being mystical or symbolic. It's literally, you know, it was literally six days, right? And a seventh of rest. So that comes with 168 hours, <laughs> you know? So even on the Old Testament on, in, in the Genesis story, those um, extremely rigid, legalistic and literalistic interpretations are I'm not really comfortable with them to be honest with you because I don't think the Old Testament or the New were written to be mere fact in that sense of hey you have to take this absolutely literally I mean show me a literal parable you know if you don't take the parables metaphorically and symbolically they lose their deepest meaning right yeah I mean Judaism, you already know this, we have our parties concept, we've got Peshat, we, we go through the different levels, right, of how we interpret things. And that simple meaning is that literal, this is what the text says, and that's the first layer. We have three more layers to go through. And that's what semiotics is for me. And I know that's a little off topic. But what I'm trying to get to is when we dive into Remez and Drash, Remez is looking a little deeper and then Drash is where we mess with it. And we say, here's the metaphor, what does this mean? What's going on here? And within orthodoxy, we say, yeah, Torah is true, you know, capital T there for truth, but it's also metaphorically true. And so yes. just because it says this is how it happened, 
it doesn't mean it's literally how it happened. We see sometimes that the numbers of the soldiers don't add up. And right. so we're looking, okay, if these numbers don't add up and we know Torah is true, what's going on here semiotically? Where's the metaphor? What are we dealing with? And it's, exactly. for example, this past Sunday was Tisha B'Av, which was the biggest day of mourning for the Jewish people. It's when the first temple was destroyed, the second temple, when the Crusades, like when the Crusades launched, when all the Jews were kicked out for the uh, Spanish Inquisition, um, when the eve of the First World War started with the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and then when the first death camp opened, and the Holocaust. Yeah. And so that's a lot to happen on one day. And when we talk, when, there's only little parts we can study because we're supposed to be in mourning. So one of the few parts of Talmud or Torah that we can study that day talks about this going back and forth of this baseless hatred. And this, it's all these stories. So it's four different stories that lead together to say this is how we ended up with Jerusalem destroyed. One of them, we talk about uh, Caesar, the Emperor Nero. We talk about him, about how he was going to attack Jerusalem. And he, as he's marching, he feels kind of weird about it. So he shoots an arrow in each direction. And they all land on the path mm -hmm. to Jerusalem, like the arrow turns midair. And he sees a Jewish <laughs> kid walking, he stops, asks the Jewish kid. The Jewish kid recites this piece of scripture that says that God's going to pour out his wrath on whoever hurts the Jewish people. And so says Nero says, wait a second, I got it's going on here, God. You want Jerusalem taken care of. You want it punished. You want them to lose that. But you want a fall guy for this. I don't <laughs> want to be that fall guy. And it says that Nero turned quit his job as the emperor, disappeared, and converted to Orthodox Judaism. Are you kidding me? That's no. quite a story. So, but the thing I've is, we don't know if it's literal, or we don't know if it's metaphor, so we take it as maybe it's literal, but we know there's a metaphor. That's a great story. That is a great story. Well, I have one more category of discussion here. We've already gone a little right around 15 minutes, so I want to wrap it up with one more perspective on end time. We've talked about individual end signs, the signs of the end of our individual lives. We've talked about the cosmic sense of the end time, the end time of the universe itself as a whole, from Big Bang to Big Crunch, billions or at least thousands and thousands of years, right, depending on which time scale you interpret. Mm -hmm. And then we just talked about the spiritual or the eschatological or the theological side of it a little bit. A lot more to go into there. We might need a follow-on episode for that. But the last sense in which I want to talk about the way end signs are trying to get through to us is a little more immediate, a little more imminent, and a little more global. And you may sense already where I'm going with this, but have you ever heard of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist? You know, it, I may have, but I may have also forgotten. You'll have to refresh me here. I, I was going to anyway, because anyone who happens across the podcast is going to want to know if they don't. Well, here's a couple of paragraphs from the about, very short, four or five sentences from their about page on their website. Quote, the bulletin was founded in 1945 by Manhattan Project scientists who, quote, could not remain aloof to the consequences of their work. The organization's early years chronicled the dawn of the nuclear age and the birth of the scientist movement, as told by the men and women who built the atomic bomb and lobbied with both technical and humanist arguments for its abolition. Manhattan Project was the one done in the Southeast at Los Alamos, right, where they built uh, um, uh, Little Man and Fat Boy or whatever the two bombs were that they yeah. were used at Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. That was, that's the Manhattan Project. And when the project was over, these scientists said, we can't just stand back from this. 
So they started this thing called the Bulletin. Today, I'm reading again from the website, today the Bulletin is an independent nonprofit 501c3 organization. With our international network of board members and experts, we assess scientific advancements that involve both benefits and risks to humanity with the goal of influencing public policy to protect our planet and all its inhabitants. And they started the, what they call the doomsday clock. I'm familiar with uh, that. All right, they set it once a year in January. And they started two years after the bulletin was founded in 45. So the first time they said it was in 1947. So we're 71 years down the road. Uh, the, the, and it's not good news. And January this year, they set the clock to two minutes till midnight, where midnight represents doomsday apocalypse, end of times, disaster for humanity, okay? Yeah. Apocalyptic, cataclysmic, species killing, extension level reality, okay? And when they take the clock to two minutes to midnight, it's only been that low twice in its 70 year history. This January in 2018, and in 1953 at the peak of the Cold War, Okay. Yeah. Eight years after they had dropped the two bombs in Japan. Uh, today, they don't just look at thermonuclear war. They look at climate change. They look at technology change. They look at uh, weapons of mass destruction that are chemical and biological. They look at pandemic diseases. They look at all kinds of factors and technology like artificial intelligence and robotics and nanotech, you know, all the things that Lynn calls GRIN, right? Genetics, robotics information technology and nanotech, right? Grin. Yeah. Uh, so from their perspective, the clock is at two minutes to midnight. That means to them, these guys who know the state of the world, they're one of the most official barometers of how dangerous the times are we live in, actually. And they're saying we're sitting on a hair trigger. That's basically what two minutes to midnight means. We're sitting on a hair trigger that could go off any moment. Well, that to me is kind of like what I've been thinking of and talking about as an end sign. <laughs> this, is, this is us facing annihilation at our own hands, self-inflicted extinction level events of many kinds. Um, the ones I just listed, for instance, their lead story on their website right now is how, what a horrible job the media has done in covering the heat wave phenomenon. 127 stories last week covered the heat wave globally. Not only one of them mentioned climate change. Mm. Now, when's the last time, I don't know what goes on in your side of the, the church world or the synagogue world, and that's my question to you. The last time I can remember sitting in a sermon or a home study group, or even a discussion within our cohort, mind you, that brought up the topics that we that I just introduced to this conversation and said, how, how significant is this to the church? Uh, it's, it's not even acknowledged in the church. I can't remember a sermon. I can't remember a conversation in a Christian context where this was the primary focus and topic. And I'd say the Christian community needs to be thoroughly ashamed of that deliberate blindness. Just a little bit of an editorial there. <laughs> No, I, I get what you're saying. That may be the case. Um, when I look at climate change, I see it from a scientific end, but I acknowledge it for most people in the world, it is a theopolitical issue. The theology and the politics of it decides what they believe about the science of it, regardless of what the science says. 
And so I know some individuals who converted to Christianity and upon conversion to Christianity, they therefore renounce climate change and they think anybody who's an idiot that believes in it. But I just don't get it. I don't either. I mean, the science, the, there's two sides to the science story. Now, you know, this is also part of my dissertation thesis, but I think the science is overwhelming. The scientific evidence is overwhelming. This is the Anthropocene age. It's a new term in geological time measurement that says this is the age in which man, humanity being on the planet, started impacting the environment. And it goes back thousands and thousands of years. But it's only recently that our impact has begun to affect us directly. Okay? Yeah. And that's where we are. We're in the Anthropocene age where we've been having an impact and only recently we've begun to realize the effect is not good and the signs are pretty ominous, frankly. And that being the case, these end signs, this is a fourth sense of end signs that are speaking to us that we're just kind of, you know, the three blind, the blind, the deaf, and the dumb monkey, right? Yeah. Uh, now, that's my view on the scientific evidence, theological issues aside. Uh, the only reason I brought the whole church question into it is it's a conscience issue. It's a stewardship issue. It's a moral issue. Uh, and from that perspective, that means that it becomes a spiritual and Christian issue on those three counts, at least. It, does, this, does the Orthodox Jewish community resonate with that? See, that's, that's where it gets interesting, right? Because as far as, you know, Orthodox Jewish crowd would be concerned in regards to this, it, science is science. It doesn't matter. It's science. So your beliefs need to synchronize with this, right? Especially if Torah is metaphor. So we accept, by and large, I don't know of a single non-Jew that doesn't, or I don't know of a single Jew that accepts the idea of there not being this. So every Jew, as far as I know, believes in climate change. That's, mm -hmm. that's one thing. But whether or not they act on it is a different story. You have some groups for advocacy groups that believe in the Tacon Alarm, repair the world, and we repair the world by doing these things. But let's be honest, here I'm considered a hippie. And I'm considered a hippie because when we use plastic, it's not actually plastic, it's made from wheat or sugar starch and it composts. And we, whenever we have to use something disposable, it composts. Our garbage is picked up once every other week because that's the city of Portland for you. But we are very much a, if I don't need to do this wasteful thing, I'll go out of my way to not do that wasteful thing. Like we even make our own stuff. So my wife and I will make our own detergents and everything using renewable materials. So we're considered the hippies because we do these things. Because the concept of Tikkun Olam, as far as the average Orthodox Jew, from my observance, is that they focus on there are lights in the nations by living Torah and the rest of the world say, wow, these guys are weird until the Messiah comes like, wow, you guys were right. There's not much going on with practical taking care of the world because that's the Messiah's problem. At least. Well, that, now, now I, I, that, because based on what you were saying earlier about the uh, spiritual as well as moral responsibility to do our best to take care of the planet, right? Same, same, as, the, same as the Christian stewardship idea. Isn't there a fairly large dose of hypocrisy there? This is where I kind of feel like there might be. And the, part of the thing is, is that there's so much going on. And like here in Portland, yeah. I, everybody here, if you took them and dropped them in New York or California, they'd all be called granola because of how we live here. But as far as how I live compared to them is that extra extreme 
it, everybody here uses paper because the city requires paper, no plastic. We're talking about having a ban on straws. And so yeah. there's all these things that are happening, but there's not this active effort to be more of a conservationist and more of a recycler. There are some individuals that are doing it. And I feel like those individuals are more on the spirituality connection, like being Hasidic or a Kabbalist, than so much yeah. on the yeshivish crowd. But now if you go to mm -hmm. Israel, everybody uses plastic cups. But the second you're going to, what you'll notice right away is you cannot squeeze that plastic cup because it will break. Because it is super thin plastic. You can't buy these thick solo cups there. Everything is there very much designed to be renewed and reused, but that's because the country has to do it. All 100% of the water, the drinking water, everything they use, the wastewater, is recycled and used to water all of the growth that they have. That's how they take care of crops and everything. And they're even developing technology to pull water out of the air. So they're very yeah. much renewable because they've been forced to be that. But yeah. in my well, experience... That's, that's encouraging. That's encouraging, but... I have to say, it's kind of like fighting the battle against your own individual death when the death of the species is what's looming. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I'm kind of being dramatic about it, but there's two, there's a couple of cons, three concepts that come into play here. And they're all three relatively new. The newest, the oldest one is actually cultural lag. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, but it dates back to the early 20th century sociologists and anthropologists noticed that the time difference between when like a new technology or a new ideology or a new philosophy or a new teaching method or things like that were invented and first appeared on the scene, it would be years or decades before they became embedded in the culture. Uh, like iPhones. How long did it take for iPhones? It was extremely quick, but there was still some lag there a matter of a few years yeah. before they became so pervasive that you can't drive a car without putting your life at risk <laughs> yeah, because of iPhones. Right? Well, that's cultural lag. There's another one that's a longer range thing, and this only came into light within this century, the last 15, 20 years. It's called shifting baseline syndrome. And, and they discovered it in the fisheries. And what they discovered was the life cycles, the populations, the food, the, food, the food cycle, the food chain had changed dramatically, but you had to really look over a long period of time to notice the change. Here's a good metaphor for how to do that. And you could do this in Oregon. If you find those old uh, places on the waterfront where you can go get into a deep sea fishing boat and go out to sea and catch big fish and come back and have photos taken of your catch. Yeah. You can find one of those that's about 75 years old or older, and they've got pictures all over the walls of the catches. Find the earliest pictures and follow the timeline. The size, the weight, the gross of the catch steadily declines over those years. But you look at the faces of the fishermen, the one standing there holding that three-pound flander with two other people standing beside him with nothing, they're just as beaming and proud as the one guy with a 400 pound sea bass 50 years ago. See what I mean? Yeah. That baseline of nature has shifted so that from one generation to the next, what you take to be the natural world is nothing like what our grandfathers thought the natural world was. And it's nothing like what our grandchildren are gonna think of the, the natural world is. That's shifting baseline syndrome. You put that together with cultural lag, 
you know what you get? Technology traps. If you think about a lobster trap, how lobsters just kind of wander into this little cone-shaped trap to get some bait, and then they can't get out because they're in a cone. That's a technology trap. You build the trap, it's the technology. It draws the lobster in, he has no idea, and then he can't get out. Too late, lobster's caught and gets steamed pretty quick. Well, look at the technology traps we've got laying around us today. Thermonuclear war, weapons of mass destruction, climate change, blah, 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 blah. There are 15 million mines from wars that ended long ago, still buried. You know this in Israel and, and uh, Palestine and all that's going on over there in the warfare just in that part of the world. I mean, it's, it's heinous what we're doing with technology traps as a result of cultural lag and shifting baseline. And, and I bring all that up just to say, each of us is facing our own end time, our own, the signs of our own end. As a universe, we're facing an end time that's cataclysmic for everything that exists. It's all gonna go into a big black hole crunch. Theologically, spiritually, eschatologically, we're looking at a time when both Judaism and Christianity say there's an end coming. We differ as to what that end looks like, but I think Judeo-Christian theology would agree that there's an end of some sign, some kind coming, and we don't know how we don't know how to look for the signs, but we'll know them when we see them. I think it's kind of the story. And then there's this fourth sense where this goes back to what you were saying about we need the Messiah so badly that he's the only one that can get us out of this mess. That's that fourth sense of the end signs that I think we're seeing and not recognizing about 99% of us are. And that is this, you know, this is the trap we put ourselves in. And you're right, I think you're right. We're either gonna annihilate the species or something like the Messiah's return is gonna have to come get us out of this mess. So those are the four senses, the end signs that I wanted to talk about. Okay, it almost makes me wonder, and this is a little conspiracy theorist to me, almost makes me wonder if there's religious organizations that are secretly working to bring about the end to force a messianic era. <laughs> but, you know, maybe I've watched uh, that, too many hey, movies. No. Uh, no, no, no. I only chuckle because you know how hard it is for me to stay out of conspiracy theory in this dissertation? Yeah, I imagine it'd be pretty hard. Oh, it's rough. It's rough because I'm writing about totalitarianism. Sheldon, well, this is going to be obscure and arcane for most of the listeners, but my research focuses on People like Noam Chomsky, Chris Hedges, Sheldon Wolin, Howard Zinn, voices who've been saying for decades, you know, that we're bringing about our own ruin. And they've become more strident over the years, but there's a massive resistance to hearing what they're saying. And it starts at the top. Uh, but anyway, that's, so it's hard for me to stay out of that conspiracy theory perspective. I mean, I, there's another conspiracy theory. We ought to put this in the future. We're going to have a discussion in a future session about the death of Jesus, right? Yeah. Every time a Christian says to me, eh, that's conspiracy theory. It's a bunch of hogwash. I say, oh, really? Let's talk about how Jesus died. <laughs> Isn't that a conspiracy? And you're a Christian. Do you not believe that the conspiracy? Or is it just some fantasy somebody cooked up? Rhetorical question for a future session. Yeah, I think but the hard anyway. part you have is that people either tend to veer too much into conspiracy or veer too far away from it. And they don't know how to have a healthy sense of skepticism and realism. Well, uh, the way I settled it was I stopped thinking about it as conspiracy theory or conspiracy fact or conspiracy fiction. And I started thinking about it as conspiracy science. 
forensic study on identifying and uncovering conspiracy. Conspiracy is a crime. It's on the books. And in order for it to be punishable um, and judged by a jury of peers, et cetera, et cetera, there has to be a forensic method for gaining conviction, for proving it exists. So I started thinking in terms of conspiracy science a long time ago. And that's a big part of my dissertation. But again, I digress. Did I answer all the questions you had from the Jewish perspective? Uh, it bears more discussion, but I was pleased to find that there, is, there are resonant harmonies there in terms of Messiah. There's resonant harmony there in terms of the moral and, and, and spiritual duty and responsibility that we have for stewardship. So there's solid bricks to put in the bridge. All righty. Send questions, comments, and suggestions to semiobytes at gmail.com. Semiobytes is a podcast co-hosted by Yedbrick and Semiocity to answer Semitic questions via Semiotic analysis by addressing misunderstandings to build a bridge of shalom between Judaism and Christianity. Semiobytes is a component of the Track 2 dissertation process at Portland Seminary for Jonathan Esterman and Terry Rankin. Musical consideration provided by bensounds.com.